if if you get in a helicopter over the uh, over America and you look down where the wagon trails used to go, all these wagon trails going east to the west and the gold rush, all start off as separate tracks, and by the time they get halfway across, the ruts are that deep in the ground and they're still there, and you can see from space, you can see the the routes that the the wagon trains took because everything ends up going down the same line. And I think if you tell enough stories from different starting points, you inevitably come to the same point. And I think what I try to do is get myself back into an area where I feel safe. I mean, we all live in a very pampered world. And I grew up in a very privileged, pampered world. And so I, I can speak with some experience of what it's like to have everything. And like a lot of other people in the world, I can talk about what it's like to have nothing. And then to value the little things much more than being able to walk in and buy the latest Argo or Snake Fridge. You know. my, my, my world is recycled. Welcome to Getting Better Acquainted Live. Five conversations recorded in November 2012 in a glass house in Wapping in front of small audiences. There'll be a different conversation every day this week. And next week, there'll be a two-part GBA 100 special. That's right, Getting Better Acquainted has had 100 standard episodes, plus these five live episodes and quite a few extras. Getting Better Acquainted Live are conversations that did happen live, but they have been slightly edited before broadcast. They feature five very different live experiences. Lots of different people get involved in the conversation from the audiences to multiple guests, but they're also focused and powerful and just a great experience. I think they capture not just the conversation, but a week in a location, a time, and a place. I hope you enjoy it. We're back up, you see. Don't want to miss, miss, miss a word. So. <laughs> I'm going to have it at the start. For those that can't see this, the entire, the entire night is hinging on one rubber band. Yeah, the rubber band. Well, the rubber band the audience can hear, who are listening at home, can hear... The people in the room can't hear this at all, but it sounds really, really nice. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe we'll just forget about the conversation. Oh, I'll just keep this. I, I don't know what everyone else was smoking before I got here, but I feel a bit mis- I'm missing out on something. Before we start, I'm just going to give you this as a surprise, but I've already spoiled the surprise in advance. But I'm presenting Radcliffe with a. Uh, electronic cigarettes because the first time we had a conversation we sat in your room yes, we did. and we in your house you chain smoked the whole time and but you, you tried went to, be, to blame uh, me for getting you smoking oh again. i did start smoking as a result of that <laughs> some of my greatest work again again i had already, i already smoked it wasn't like it was the first time well we'll get into that in a, in a moment oh this is what i'm talking about <laughs> this is the full because you can't smoke in a greenhouse and we're in a well, you can, but not not a public one. And we're in a we're in a greenhouse. It's the Invisible Picture Palace, put on by In the Dark, and it's in Wapping. And we've got a room, a very full room of people today that we're going to have to pretend aren't here for most of the time that we're talking. Hello, 
I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. At this stage, I presented Radcliffe with an electronic cigarette that I'd bought especially for the occasion. But when I did so, I was forgetting to narrate it properly because I had an audience there in front of me. I forgot to narrate for the listening audience because the audience there in front of me can see. So sorry about that. I also took out an electronic cigarette for myself. Me and Radcliffe are smoking them throughout this conversation. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Radcliffe. Hello, Radcliffe. Hello. <laughs> Yeah, I wish. I, well, you, you are you are you are filming it actually. So some some people will get the benefit of your uh, of your panache there when you did that. Yeah, I'm available for bar mitzvahs and soirees at the drop of a hat. <laughs> That's right. Mm. And this is a damn fine smoke. Is it? Mm. It's an, yes. These electronic cigarettes, I do like them. Uh, they are nice. Now, the first question that I ask everyone, Rad, is how do you know me? Well, obviously, I didn't meet you at Ball Gags Anonymous or anything like that. <laughs> but I did meet you at a spoken word event called Spark London. That's right. Where we tell true stories live. A club set up in 2007, in December. For those that uh, do or don't enjoy spoken word, I thoroughly recommend a visit to either Hackney, Brixton, or the Canal Cafe Theatre to experience the other side of life from everyday folk telling true stories often exceptional in themselves which you wouldn't otherwise hear about because they're not glossy people that appear in magazines. Absolutely and that's what this show is really about is about uh, people who aren't, don't appear in magazines and in fact I mean, I, it's going to be Spark London's fifth birthday in December coming up and I now like work with Spark London. I run their Hackney Night, so I, I got I got right into that, and you got right into that. I guess was it the last time we'll have seen each other? Was that in Edinburgh? Was that the last time we would have seen uh, each other? Yeah, well, oh, no, we saw yeah. each other at Spark more recently than yeah. that. But we went up to Edinburgh to do Spark together. I was there for the first night in Edinburgh. And you hosted. Uh, I did a lot of the we, shows. We did a, a a fabulous a ten day run, um, pure showbiz, um, where we had. Uh, storytellers from up and down the country and overseas. We had Canadians, we had Americans, we even had some Scottish people, which was good. Uh, we were in Scotland and <laughs> we had a fantastic run where we had all these different stories and then we ran at the end of it something which everybody said wouldn't work and I absolutely championed from the call. We ran a 24 hour story a thon which was just batshit crazy and we had at four o'clock in the morning we still had 34 people queuing up to come and tell their stories wow. and we did it we pulled it off we went for 24 hours non-stop storytelling i wish i'd been there for that it was such a weird disconnection of because i do the social media for spark and uh so i was in london 
hearing all of these exciting things from Edinburgh and telling the world about them, but I didn't get to experience very many of them. Yeah. But I was there for the first night, which was... You did. I mean, you are our opening act. I oh, well, I you started I just, the entire run. Yeah, I was live-tweeting it and on stage. It was a very strange combination of things. Well, the great thing about that was that and you didn't stick around for is that in order to shut me up, I was then asked on to another show called The Liar Show. Which was a great show. Which, I saw that. Did you catch that? I loved that. Um, I didn't see you on it, but I saw the show. Well, I had the exquisite joy of telling a story about the first time I'd ever been arrested. Obviously, I say the first time, there had been others. <laughs> um, but the first time I got arrested, and I decided to try my luck at being a judge and a lawyer and a defence. And I defended myself so well that I got a week in Wormwood Scrubs on the back of it. Um, but it was a noble defence. And I tell the story, and it's quite nuts. About how I stole a bottle of vintage Bollinger champagne and a, a side of wild Scottish smoked salmon. Um, there were reasons for this. Obviously, I had been invited for a weekend away to a house party, and um, I'd spent all the money for the train tickets that my mother had sent me. And I was meant to take my girlfriend, and I thought I'd absolutely worked it out when I stood in the pub bemoaning my fate and how I wasn't going to be able to get there, and it was all a bit awkward and embarrassing. And this chap said, don't worry, I'll give you a lift. I thought, brilliant, problem solved. He said, I'll pick you up at 11 tomorrow morning. I thought, fantastic. So I went rushing home to my girlfriend and said, don't worry, I've sorted it. We're going, it's fine, we've got a lift. And he turned up the next day in a two-seater. And with him driving, uh, there was only a seat for my girlfriend. So I did the decent thing. And I let her go off with this complete stranger who I'd met for 10 minutes in a pub and thought, how on earth am I going to get there? And I had scraped just enough money to buy a train ticket, but I knew I couldn't go there and not give them a present. And I'm afraid the, uh, the panic of turning up and being seen to be less than generous was so much that I forgot my moral compass for a moment, and as I was wearing a barbed raincoat with a rather nice poacher's pocket in it, <laughs> Helped myself to this bottle of champagne and this side of wild Scottish smoked salmon. And as I left Waitrose, I <laughs> felt this will soon to become familiar tug on my shoulder. <laughs> Oi! And I was nicked. And I thought, well, I was so embarrassed and I was so ashamed. I must have been 18 or 19. And I thought, I can't let my parents know. They'll be mortified. Don't worry, I'll defend myself. <laughs> I, I, I'd watched Crown Court. I'd watched, you know, all, all, all the sort of irons. I knew how it worked. I'd watched, <laughs> I'd watched the telly, the dramas, the courtroom dramas. Anyway, I said to this guy, who happened to be the brother, it's my only show, true showbiz connection, because this happened to be Leslie Crowther, his brother, was the magistrate. <laughs> and Leslie Crowther did Crackerjack. It's five to five, and it's Crackerjack. So I, the only connection with this man, I thought, well, his brother's quite nice. This chap might be quite nice as well. I was not thinking straight. And I decided, I elected to defend myself, and what I said was that I would plead mitigation for this hideous calumny that I had perpetrated, and I apologised profusely. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Honestly, Your Honour, you don't call me Your Honour, just call me Sir. Yes, Sir, Your Honour, I replied. <laughs> and I said, I said, I, I, what I did was wrong. And I wouldn't have done it had I not been desperate and driven to it. I was desperate and, and starving and homeless and a long way from home. And, and, and the magistrate stopped me at this point. And went, Excuse me, uh, Mr. Royce. 
He said, is it customary when desperate and starving for you to uh, sup on a vintage Bollinger champagne <laughs> and wild Scottish smoked salmon? And I, he sort of looked up and I said, precisely my point, sir. I am a victim of my upbringing. <laughs> my father always told me that, that while circumstances may change, standards never should. Um, which I thought was quite a good line and he gave me a week in Wilmot's Scrubs for my face um, a bitter lesson, a hard lesson and The Liars Show is uh, a show where there are four storytellers and three people tell the truth and, and one, one person, person tells a lie and yes. to be good on that show you have to have a real life events that seem like they're preposterous well it seems never exactly happen. and that story and you and, tell it and, and, and would you say that that's kind of appropriate to talk like you could say that about most of your life that people might consider them to be quite like it seems almost like a lie how ri- ridiculous well, certainly circumstances can get for you at certain times yeah that would be <laughs> that's a good way of looking at it on the barometric scale of behavioural science I come in fairly Cro-Magnon at times um, sure. and was driven at various times of my life to a fairly Neanderthal existence um, which I'm not proud of No. although I am you know I can look back at it now and go it's quite remarkable to have survived some of the sort of nonsense that, that went down that's right um, and I'm um, I'm delighted to be able to sit here in the comforts of a greenhouse <laughs> um, and there was a time when this would have seemed a palace well, that's an that's an interesting thing because when you when you were talking to that judge, you said you were you were desperate and homeless. You well, you weren't homeless at that time, were you? Oh, certainly not. No, not in those days. But eventually, you were to, bec- to become <coughs> someone who was. Uh, no, I, yes, I, I in yet to overcome the uh, twin advantages of wealth and privilege to achieve utter mediocrity, homelessness, and despair. It took a long time, didn't it? But you finally yeah. got there. Yeah. It took another twenty-five years, and when I eventually achieved. Well, I ended up living in a skip, as you're aware. I am. I mean, and this, and you are in the in the group of people who are a second guest on my show. And uh, in the first conversation that we had, we we talked quite a lot about your experiences of homelessness and how that and addiction and how that came to be. Yeah. Um, and I'd recommend people going back there and listening to those if they want to be filled in on that. Because today, to not tread over old ground, I'm generally going to be trying to go to other areas of your life. They're, they're absolutely right. As, but, a, as a repeat offender here at the... Uh, I mean... The, the getting better acquainted. Yeah. Um, let's talk about other things. Well, we will. I mean, but I'm sure we'll... The, that can ha- hardly not come into the conversation, I'm sure. But And also, there is a Spark London story where you told that called Life in... Is it a, Living in a Soho Skip? I think On it's Living called, in a Soho on Skip. On Living in a Soho Skip, which is a short... If someone wants to get it bite-sized, like the conversation we had was two hours split into two parts, but you can get it kind of bite-sized on Spark London as well. This is a short tale of whimsy and and hope, really. A triumph triumph of of hope over adversity. Well, I think it is hope, because, I mean, one of the nicest things about the first conversation we had is that it was had in your house, and you had been homeless. Oh, so you flatter me. Well, well, It's a flat. Yeah, well, sorry, yes, you're flat. You're abode, the place you live. And actually, one of the things that you told me after we turned the mic off about your flat was that um, you have the furniture in that flat has mostly come from skips. All of it. All of it. It's well, I, or it's been um, intercepted prior to arriving in a skip. 
Um, it was entirely furnished out of the generosity of other people who knew where I had been and where I came from. And it's remarkable, actually. I am very attached to every piece in there. Yeah. Um, because they're all other people's discards. And I've made a home out of other people's discarded furniture. Well, yeah, um, I mean, it's really it's affectionately nice. known as humility for this. <laughs> That's right. And there is a sign in the lift that does say, please do not urinate in the lift. Yes. Uh, which has proved that I'm the only person in my block that can read. <laughs> apart from that, um, apart from that, it does represent the, the love and giving nature of, of other human fellow travellers, if you like. And for, people often say, why don't you decorate your work now? You, you have a life. You know, why don't you get rid of that? Or why don't you? No. They hold such a, uh, what's the word, um, important place because they each piece of furniture represents either a milestone or, or a sense of staking myself back into the world. When I got the cooker and I dragged it single-handedly, I find it very difficult to ask for help, but there was also there was something about the sort of caveman thing of making my dwelling. And somebody was throwing out this cooker, and I, I asked them, I said, are you getting rid of that? And they said, yeah. I said, does it work? He said, yeah, yeah, it works. He said, but it's, it's gas and it's old and I want a new one. And I, I said, well, can I have it? And he said, yeah. It was a neighbour, three blocks down. And I, I got it home and I, I did take a bit of a risk because I plumbed it into the gas mains myself. <laughs> And um, after I discovered that I'd first plumbed it into the washing machine outlet, <laughs> I couldn't get the beans to heat up. I, I then actually did, I did, did my homework and worked out how to do it. And I did, and I got it in the house, and I plumbed it into the gas main, and the first meal I cooked on it, the sense of achievement, the sense of yeah. completion on that was tremendous. I mean, we, we all live, live in a very, very pampered world. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and grew I grew up, up in a very, very privileged, pampered world. world. And so, so I, I can I speak, speak with, with some, some experience, experience of what it's like, like to have, to have everything. everything. And like a lot of other people in the world, I can talk about what it's like to have nothing. And then to value the little things much more than being able to walk in and buy the latest Argo or Snake Fridge, you know. My, my, my world is recycled. Sure. I am actually, a lot of people criticise me because I, I like to drive cars, you know, I mean, I've, I've long held the view that, you know, money can't buy you happiness, but I'd rather be miserable in a Mercedes-Benz <laughs> than in a Metro, <laughs> just call it taste. And people say, oh God, that's a gas guzzler or it's uh, whatever. And I say, my answer to them is always, no, no, I'm recycling. And I do. I've recycled lots of things. And as I think my life is, is built on sec a second chance, a recycled yeah. opportunity, it's entirely fitting. And I'm very happy with it. Well, it's very touching being with you in, in, in humility. But it, I never touched him. I just wanted which, to which, <laughs> which is a fun, I mean, because humility, Villas in itself, like it's a joke name. But actually, yeah. there's something, it is very, you know, humility is a, a, actually a very powerful thing. And being in there with someone who really values the home yeah. that they have made, and it's 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 not flashy, but it you know as you say it's kind of heroin chic the, the design. <laughs> Ironically, that's, yeah. that's the, the, the only heroin you get these days. Um, oh, I didn't know. It was one I've met one or two. Oh yes, 
there's those two. We might get to that later. <laughs> the second question that I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Which I guess we're kind of touching on a little bit. Ah, you mean how do I fill that awkward gap? How do you answer that retirement? awkward question? <laughs> I am a writer. And I, I do two things. I, I write, um, and if there are any publishers in the room, please do come and see me afterwards. Just completed on uh, a screenplay which is doing the rounds. I have another screenplay app called Old School, which is about a, a rather anarchic character, I think shameless, set in a private school. This strange character called Radcliffe Fairfax, funnily enough, who um, <laughs> is the inappropriate man to educate people, but because of his street cunning and smarts and dodgy ways, actually prepares the pupils in his charge much better for the real world than any amount of you know maths and Latin declension ever did for me. I mean, I, I don't see our school education system in this country. I don't think there's anything I learnt at that school that I, that I have found useful in later life, other than Sergeant Bull of Thames Valley Drug Squad's terrifying film on the perils of addiction, where I learnt how to inject drugs from It's the only good thing to know that. <laughs> Um, yes. But other than that, I I loathed my time at school. Yeah, I hated it. I, I was very unteachable. I knew everything, of course. I was utterly miserable. And I mean, I want to talk to you about school, actually. But I guess the, the other, the, so you do, the one thing you do is write fiction that is influenced by reality. And I, I write yes, and I, I write other... fiction based on based on my experiences of reality and trying to get an alternative view. So it's yeah. ironic, if you like. Yeah. And then Comedy, I write. I, I call it novelette verite, and I'm writing about the world as I saw it, your life, and my experiences, yeah. and I get asked to speak quite a lot on that subject. I think purely because. I'm someone that sounds like he's just walked straight out of a dining room and eaten. Yeah. Um, and yet I know how to eat a second-hand supper off the floor of Soho. You know, so. No, exactly. And I, I'm I'm as as guilty as anyone of of, of, of trying to get you in in front of as many audience members as possible in, in many different guises because I I run a few shows and do a few things that I'm always happy to have you on. But do you feel like because we were talking about this I think in. Uh, so it was in foils, I think, when we had a meeting about Spark, and you were saying, you know, you, this you are a one, you know, you're a one note. Everybody wants your s story of being homeless. Oh God, no! I am the Lamar <laughs> of the spoken word. I mean, the Kanjagudu was one hit wonder. Yeah, absolutely. All anyone ever wants to hear about is is what was it like living in a skip? Yeah. You know? And there's only so many times you can enjoy telling people how you used to dump in a drain on the back of the Soho Hotel. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I continue to tell it because I sing for my supper. And, you know, sure. Why not? Well, and it's a valuable story, I think, for the audiences to hear. Um, I can understand why it's becoming well, uh, I think it, a positive one for you. To yeah. sound pompous and self-aggrandising for a moment, I think it's important that people can hear that you can come back from that. Mm. That's the, that's the only bit that makes it that gives it any validity. Is you can get to that state, and you, you don't have to give up. If you there is, I found a way out, and I I 
we'll share that with anyone at the drop of the hat. And it's a really moving story. But one of the things my friend, friend of mine called George, who was in this very room the other day, uh, this uh, this very greenhouse the other day, said when he listened, and he he, he you know he lo- he really likes your story, he really likes you, he really likes because uh, it's it's quite a political conversation that we had the first time. We get into mm-hmm. drugs policy and lots of things, yeah. and he, he's very supportive of the of your opinions. I have very strong know, views, and yeah. quite right. So in my view, but he said, but he wouldn't that that because to fill in people who don't know the story, you went in front of a judge and that judge gave you a second chance. Yeah, that man is responsible for starting a chain of events that stopped the rot, if you like. Exactly, he rehumanised yeah. me. Absolutely, and one of what George said was, you know, I love Radcliffe. I think it's amazing what. That he's got out of that is it's it you know you're because I you know I like to say about you you've seen all su- you've seen every part of the class system you've been all the way down you've been all the way to the top and so I think you're a very interesting person to talk to about class and about these sorts of issues and uh, he said yeah but would he have been offered a second chance if he had had a different accent well I don't know about that <laughs> what accent would you like. Well, you, know, well, yeah, you can do you other accents whatever you like man. but your accent was I mean, I mean do you agree that really? it's, is that what you think well what do you think yeah, I'm not worth a second chance well, that what do, you think? do you think that you would have got a, a second chance if you'd have had that accent that's a very good accent if you'd have been an, someone with a northern Irish accent you might have been judged very differently by a judge at that moment mm. in time true the fact that I could barely speak at that time I was so shut down and I was catatonic with I was emotionally shut down I was terrified and angry I was bitter at the world and you looked homeless I guess Uh, I smelt it from a long distance you didn't need to see me exactly right Um, you know my family and did cross the street when they saw me they didn't want to get involved it was too painful for them and you have to sympathise with that they were watching and had watched a man destroy himself sure a man in their view had been given so many advantages and and yet I had been fatally flawed with this sort of hedonism gene that you know I was given this belief that if one was good ten must be fantastic whether it rely you know talking about a drink or a drug or a pill it doesn't matter what it was I had no ability to stop and so when I had smashed myself to bits and I came in and became malleable if is want of a better word. I mean, the very last place I thought that I, my soul would reach out and speak the truth yeah. would be in the dock of a courtroom sure. after a failed bank robbery attempt, where a judge who had the power of you know, pretty much life or death over me, um, he was the enemy. And he made the unbelievably humane gesture of stopping the proceedings and asking me directly, so... Mr. Royce, what do you think I should do with you? And I took his invitation to be sincere and I looked at him straight in the eye and I said, if you send me to jail, you will just have a bigger problem to deal with when I get out. Yeah. And he said, so what do I do with you? And I don't know where it came from. I just, I started crying. I just said, help me. Help me. Well, I think he did. I think this very, uh, very that very, uh, very eloquently puts pay to George's theory. To move away from your one-trick pony 
your one hit wonder <laughs> story although it's it, you know it's so powerful that it's a, I'm sure the audience will be annoyed that I am but so what uh, <laughs> we don't normally have to worry about that <laughs> buy the book <laughs> <laughs> so the other day when you uh, you came to Hackney to, to do a, a story oh, I certainly did I loved it you told a really good story and I wondered if you wanted to go into that now so that's about your school days do you do you remember the story I'm talking about so when you were on holiday from your private school that you went to and you went to a different very famous public ah school. yes now I remember, you the prompt, I remember the prompt has been given I remember the story well neatly done sir had I just to preface this had I been a horse or a dog I would have had the best childhood and the best life ever um, unfortunately I was born human and my parents, bless them, did the very best they could, but I, I, I could neither chase a hare nor chase a fox, so I was pretty useless. So I was packed off to boarding school quite quick. And that's what we all did, and that's fine. That's the way the world of the 60s. And the time came, my parents used to sponsor a horse race at Newcastle Racecourse, the Northumberland Plate. And it so happened to coincide with the half-term of the school I was at. And uh, I rang up, mummy dutifully, with my 50p, queuing up in the Roxborough Hall to make my phone call, long before mobiles. <coughs> Give you my age away a bit there. Um, <laughs> most people here will think mid to late 30s. But, um, certainly, certainly. But um, I'm a little older. Um, and I rang up my mother and I, you know, said, Oh, darling, oh, God... We've got the house full this weekend. She said, couldn't you find a friend to stay with? So I thought, oh, right. Lost one to the time. So the, I was at Stowe, and the half-term we had was at the week before the half-term of my other friends who were at Harrow. And so I rang up my friend Dick Ramsbotham, and uh, can you imagine what time he had at school? <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought I had problems. Anyway... <laughs> Oh, Dick said, oh, come on, mate, come up and stay with me, come up to the school. And I thought, OK, well, I, so my half-term started on the Wednesday, so by Wednesday tea time I had arrived at Harrow on the Hill, this jolly end of Britishness. And I was, they'd just started central feeding there, so I'm in the dining room and I'm talking to all my mates who all come from Northumberland and we're all having a laugh. Hey, what are you doing here? Oh, God, this is a right jolly wheeze. Ah, ah, ah. And... Even a prefect came up and he said, you lot, making far too much noise. And who are you? And I just went, Royds, Elmfield. And he said, oh, yes, well, just keep it down, would you? And having passed that test, they invited me back to the house and I, one of the guys in the room next to Dick Ramsbotham, had been rusticated, i.e. sent home for a week for some misdemeanour or other. So his room was empty. So Dick said, why don't you stay here? Ah, I thought, Great. So I did. I slept in his room. And in the morning, Dick came in and said, look, we've got to go off to lessons. Just keep your head down. He said, we'll be back at 11 for tea and toast. How's that? I said, look, fantastic. Well, I got bored. I opened up the cupboard and I saw a jacket. <laughs> and I saw all these trousers. Anyway, ten minutes later, and there I was, fully dressed as a Herovian now. And 20 minutes after that, I was appearing as Helwood an exchange student from Mutchen Gladbach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I come, I come, I don't know which lessons I meant to be here, but I, I'm here. Uh, and I, 
carried this facade on for three days I got away with it and I eventually got thrown out of the school I was never even enrolled when, uh, when they sussed me out on the sort of school roll call on the Friday afternoon and I felt quite safe at the beginning. I hadn't really thought it through, to be, to be fair. And there's 700 guys milling around, all doffing their hats, and they have to, to doff their cap to their preface and the headmaster. And, of course, my name was never going to get caught. So I still protesting to be Helmut. Yeah, 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 German, German. They finally worked out that I was a complete imposter, and I was marched to the train station. Did you, lose, to did you lose the accent when you when they figured you? Or did you no, you I stayed in character <laughs> right to the bitter end. Fair enough. Um, rather like rather like the Wehrmacht, I was not going to give in, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I made the fatal mistake because I I have uh, three children, and uh, the boys, my eldest son, who's a very talented sportsman, had got a, won a sports scholarship to Harrow, and I. Uh, you know, when, which house should he go in? Well, there was only one choice, a natural choice. So we'll send him to Elmfield. So on the day of the new boys' tea, the housemaster, who, how can I put this, was never going to be a family man, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> he put his hand over, there was like all the new boys' tea, and there's like 12 new boys, and nobody really knows, and all feeling a bit awkward and gangly, and he's trying to be all jolly, and he says, So, boys, do any of you have uncles or brothers or cousins that came to Harrow and bless him my, my little chap put his hand up and said but my dad was here oh wonderful I say Mr Royce you tell the boys of your time in Harrow while I <laughs> introduce the mums to matron and he left the room and I had this captive audience of 12 eager schoolboys and of course I told the story of Helmut <laughs> exchange to from the Chicklandbach and he came in just at the point at which I was pretending to be German <laughs> he never spoke to me again my boys I might say survived their time at that school so yes it was uh, my experience as an exchange student was really just a pathfinder for, for my children so why did they? Well, why did you send your boys to public school if you've had such a negative experience of it yourself? Well, and you, because I mean, you were expelled very from fair it question. as well when it's you were expelled very, from Stowe. Well. I was. I did the yeah. short courses, as um, my father put it. Uh, <laughs> arrived home fully one year and two weeks ahead of what the fee plan had suggested, <laughs> and I, as you know, I've had a colourful past, and I. I had several wives, uh, two of whom were my own, in fact. And um, <laughs> the, my first wife and I had separated by the time, and we were divorced, by the time we were making those decisions. And because I was completely AWOL, unreliable, and on drugs at that period, I had no real say, perhaps fairly, in, in the direction that their lives and their education took. So yeah, I rolled with it. Fair enough. And I mean, and what do you? What, I mean, so when you were talking about the school system in this country, you, I mean, you were sp your specific experience of it really is, is is public school, and then you went to a kind of college in in Edinburgh, didn't you? Yeah, my experience of the well, I mean, I just remember being beaten a lot, and um, yeah, an awful lot. I mean, I was quite awkward. I mean, I was tall and lippy. And I always would see the funny side, you know. 
and when if you're in a biology, you know, you're a bunch of school kids. You're in a biology lesson, and this pompous kid at the front with his pointer goes, "Now then, Mr. Luffrey, where do you think the heart is pumping your blood right now?" And when I look up and I go, well, sir, judging by the lump in his trousers, <laughs> I, 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 so remarks like that didn't lend me... The teachers found me a, a, quite a challenge. Yeah. They used to invite me to lessons. I used to get formal <laughs> invitations on printed card, you know, to lessons. And I, would be a nice gentleman, would write back saying that I was otherwise engaged. But thank you for your kind invitation. So, yes, I was chucked out of, of Stowe and I had to go to a sixth form college uh, in Edinburgh, which is a whole other story. It is a whole other story and people can listen to that story on, a, on a, another podcast that we've done. You, but you've had no experience of the comprehensive school system, so when you're talking about the problems with education you well, want to talk about. Well, uh, to say to I've had no experience... I don't know. It's a question. No, no, it's a leading question. To say <laughs> I've had no experience of the comprehensive system would be to say that I hadn't met anyone sure, sure. outside of my... Ilk. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I, I hate this... I, I didn't um, enjoy my comprehensive school uh, I think, experience. I think, like, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. I have as many friends now who went through a private education who went through... A grammar school education. They had grammar schools in those days, sure. or, or the comprehensive school education. Yeah. And I'm I'm left with little doubt that there are good and bad points for all things. I think if a child wants to learn, then he'll thrive wherever he is. And yeah, I've met very successful right. people yeah. who came out of the comprehensive system. And perhaps you could argue that they are hungrier for success because they've seen the have you know they've lived the have not life and they see the haves having it on a barrel and i've seen people who were given and i was one of them given every financial advantage of a of a private education you know toss it away like an empty crisp packet i didn't value it i didn't understand that it was a privilege what i understood was that i was sent away from home and how and do i you resented it yeah i mean how do you think that, that dynamic could be changed I mean do you think that the education system is doomed or do you think there's a, a way of of making a system oh, well you'll get the gainsayers and the naysayers on both sides of that fence yeah, what, sure. what I think is is absolutely essential is that we educate our, our young our next generation yeah. because the reality is they will look after us in our old age and if they don't and after Brown stripped away the pensions in this country, he's created... Un- it doesn't matter how you're educated, you're still going to live longer with less and with a smaller gene pool feeding the, the state. So we're all going to hell in a handbasket, whichever way you look at it. Yep. My experience <laughs> of the French system, and I've got friends who educate their children in France, and, okay. and the baccalaureate system, which tends to be classless. Yeah. Why not? You know, we've got a wealth of talent... We have a comprehensive-based population, comprehensively educated-based population, who are, you know, struggling to compete on equal grounds. The Olympics is a good example. Struggling to compete on equal grounds with those children that went to a private education through the private education system. Uh, Well, yeah, they would, because most of the comprehensive schools sold off their playing fields for development in order to keep themselves going. Yeah. It's insane. That's, that's not an education system's fault. That is a political, social problem that everybody in this country has equal responsibility for, I think. 
and it doesn't matter whether you're from the playing fields of Eton or the backyard of Peckham. I said, if you give any of those boys the same opportunity, they will create the same results, I believe. And so to have money in this country gives you a huge advantage. And there's nothing wrong in that advantage. But there is something wrong when, as a society, we ignore when we could afford to, to give everybody else in the state system the same opportunity. And it's no good crying 20 years later, oh, well, we didn't have the money or we needed to flog it off for development. Bollocks, you're condemning a whole generation to a two-tier system which is unfair. It's inherently unfair. Oh, yes, life is unfair, but couldn't we, in a modern age, make it a little fairer? Yes. Why don't we? Why isn't there a political will to do that? I have no idea. It's not rocket science. No. Give boys a stick and a ball in a playing field, they will compete. And they'll win or lose on equal terms. Well, I, I was rubbish at that stuff. But yeah, I know what you mean. Why were you rubbish <laughs> at it? Because you didn't have an aptitude for it. Maybe. Um, were you given the opportunity to explore where you might have I was been all, Yeah, well, I, 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 I mean, I think opportunities are there if you take them, aren't they? I mean, I, within my comprehensive school education, I found my way to the theatre department and partly because that was the only place I was safe from the bullying. Yeah. Um, but 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 also finding my way there was right for me, you know. I, and English, English, and, and and writing and creative stuff is my where my aptitude lie. And I, you know, I, I left school with grades and I went to university. There's nothing I can complain about for my education, apart from the experience of being in that school, which was brutal and horrible. And I would 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 take that away from any child that had to experience yeah. that. But I don't know how you take that away. I mean, I think that comprehensive schools have different problems from private schools. I think that they probably both have different kinds of problems. And I do agree with your general point that boys and girls should have the same opportunities. And there's lots of sporty people who would benefit from having those those playing fields and it shouldn't be taken away from them. That's what I think. No, I mean, I, I, I broadly agree with that. With that, I mean, it's with the comprehensive school. It's you know, it's a really it's a really weird thing. You know, like. I mean, we had five chemistry teachers have nervous breakdowns in a row from the torments of the students. So well, they should have been teaching them how to synthesise LSD and all something. <laughs> but they probably weren't. Sure. They're probably trying to teach them a well, periodic table. Well, they, and that actually they, is an extreme example. Yeah, but yeah. my point is, is that the education that we seem to offer people has so little relevance to, them, to the world no, that they're going to go true. and live in. I think that's true in everything. Yeah. You know, teach people... A trade. I mean, I look back. I mean, one of my most happy friends from a private education, he, after all he went through, he said, this is nuts. I'm going to go and learn to be a plumber. And yeah. he did. And he makes a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, he set up his business. Learning a trade. True. Learning, you know, I, you know, I'm not a political animal. I have political views because I've, if you like, had a perspective which... You mentioned it earlier. You know, I've sort of seen the world through lots of different people's eyes at lots of different times. And yeah, you could argue, yes, but you always had a cut glass accent. You know, and I, just because, you know, everyone shoots heroin from a spoon, the fact that my spoon was silver <laughs> may be, it may, it make it made a difference. Yeah. But the, 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 the point, the point I'm trying to get at is that we all have just as much opportunity to, to succeed and to fail. I, you know, the golden egg that is your newborn babe. Our responsibility is to give that the best start in life you possibly can. 
quite manifestly, if you put people into a disadvantaged position from day one, they're going to come out at a greater disadvantage than someone who is given everything else. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. You, we're in a greenhouse. If, if we have two trays of plants and we water one lot and don't water the others and give one lot sunlight and keep the others in the shade, you're going to get weedy saplings on one side and you're going to get healthy plants on the other. Yeah, no, I agree. And what I'm saying is, is that if you've got a greenhouse, then make sure that the light and water distribution is even. Why can't you do that with people? You yep. can, but we choose not to. I don't know why we choose not to. No, it's an interesting question. And I think what you were saying about, that's generally been my experience, and most people I talk to about their education, if there's a complaint, and a lot of people have enjoyed their education, a lot of people just like learning stuff, but uh, a lot of people do complain that what they learn has no relevance to the world that they were going into. I mean, I, I would argue that people in public school, probably it does in some way, like it, they get prepared to go to Oxford, and then Oxford prepares them to be the people in charge. Oh, yeah, so, well, I mean... So, for the, the private for the education, fit that, yeah. to be, for the people who fit that model, that's okay. Yes, but look you, at the model. Dave, the look exactly. at the model. No, no, look at the model. The, the 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 education system I went into was designed to breed leaders of men, yeah, who could kill with impunity. Where's the empire? And now? go and There's run no empire, exactly yeah, yeah. an empire that no longer existed. Exactly. So it, what? Why? Well, okay. a, a friend of my dad's actually has got this theory that the, the where, where what, what's happened is because we have no empire, our last colony is our own country. Mm. So the leaders now are basically treating the public here as if they are the colonial leaders in but, this country. Uh, but the reality is they are. We call no, it diversity I agree, now. I agree, you know, but okay. um, go to London; it's ghettoized. You go sure. to Shepherd's Bush; it's downtown Somalia. You go to look the Edgware the, Road. Yeah, well, look at the response you know. to the riots. I mean, yeah. the response to the riots was these people are other. They are not like us. These people doing this, they're nothing to do with but us. They are us. Exactly. And the exactly. reality is is that the, the shops that got hit were the ones with trainers and TVs in them, and the bookshop where the education could be got was left alone. Yeah. So we'll go to war <laughs> as a people for a new pair of trainers. Kind that's of, a yeah. damning indictment. And why? Why do we go for the pair of trainers? Why? Because that's kind of what we're brought up from that little egg that you're talking about. That's what we're kind of given. Yeah. So that's what we... Anyway... We have digressed into a, 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 an area where we agree. So, and uh, I'm not trying to. Like I think we, I think we do. Do you think? No, I do think we. I think we do actually. Yeah, no, you do. and I certainly have common ground on that, and it's good because we come from both sides of that divide. Well, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm middle class, but have been. A I'm never hopeful. Been a tourist. I've been a tourist in a few classes. I mean, one of the things I was going to talk to you about today. Because, I, I mean, again, it's, it feels a little bit like I'm kind of asking you to do your great assist, but, I mean, recently you did a, another story at Spark about your parents, and kind of about your parents anyway, and a lot of the things that you talk about touch on your parents. And this was a, a story about... Do you, do, you know, do you know the story I'm talking about? Because I don't want to ruin the story by well, no, giving away the punchline. No, the most recent one you did at Warwick Avenue about the dinner... And uh, <laughs> well, yeah, it's tricky not to give away the. No, no, uh, say no more. Yeah, say no more. <laughs> Obviously, my experience of marriage is is legion, and um, I told a. Uh, we don't have time for it all here, but very briefly, I told the story of that moment. And for those who aren't yet married, you are perhaps going to be, or there may be a civil partnership on the horizon for some of you. I have no idea. There comes a point at which two families must merge. And I had 
decided to marry my first wife and I had asked her and she'd said yes which was great but I had to I had to ask my father-in-law Sir Lawrence for his permission to have, take her hand in marriage we'd gone up for the weekend it had all been staged and my mother-in-law and my wife were hiding behind the front you know the, the, the drawing room door and it was all this moment of in you go and, <laughs> and he came stomping in from the village where he'd just been to the church service and he came in and said well it's really awful I mean, can you believe it? This girl in the village, she's bloody well called the wedding off the day of the wedding. I mean, all that food, the parties, paid for everything. It's an absolute nightmare. It's a disgrace. And I came in with, well, sir, since we're on the subject, (laughs) (laughs) I feel sure by now you know how I feel about your daughter and I'd very much like your permission to marry her. And that was it, this just hideous, awkward silence. And he just dropped like a sack of potatoes <laughs> to the chair. Slack jawed, like I'd sucker punched him. I thought, this isn't going well. And, uh, <laughs> he then stood up and walked to the French doors. And as he walked out of the house, he went, Well, if that's what you want, welcome to the family. And stomped off down the lawn. Well, you know, he was hoping for at least a bottle of champagne or something. <laughs> no, another bit of it. Anyway, so then one thing led to another, and there came the fateful time when my parents had to meet her parents. Oh, God. And Emma and I tried to stage manage this. Now, my dad's a wonderful man, been sponsored by Famous Krauss his entire life, and very comfortable with a glass in his hand. And um, he, um, he, and I, I, knew that he, I knew they wouldn't get on. I knew that they were, and this is the point that people don't realise is that even within the various classes of the class system, you'll have your everyone's got a reason to bicker about anyone else. And my yeah. father was a cavalryman, and my father-in-law was a Royal Marine. So they weren't going to they weren't going to mix and blend in quite the way that you might hope. So I knew it was going to be awkward, and they had nothing in common. They'd never met. And it was the first time. And Emma and I drove up from London, a journey that would take about four hours to Anglesey in North Wales. And the traffic was a nightmare, and it took us eight and a half hours. So by the time we got there, my parents had been there for two and a half hours. And all that had happened was that, my future father-in-law, one half of what became the most disappointed parents in Britain, had been pouring gin, whiskey, and God knows what else down my father's throat. And I knew this, and my mother sort of fell upon me at the door saying, Oh, God, darling. He's had two whiskeys, three gin and tonics. God knows what else. Help. Hello, Emma. How are you? So I thought, OK, on point. Here we go. He couldn't even stand up to say hi to, to, to my fiancé. He was so half cut. And I thought, this is going to be ghastly experience, told me this. And my father-in-law, knowingly, said, I think it's time for a bottle of champagne. Now he produces this, I thought. And my father perked up, oh, well, I don't know. And he had a glass of champagne, which sent him completely over the edge. And he said, I just need to get, oh, he needs to go to the loo. So I steered him down the, the hall. And off you go. And I thought, oh, God, this is ghastly. And Emma and I are raising eyebrows to each other, thinking, this is, this is going to be tough. And then I suddenly realised, my father, he was bouncing from one side of the hall to the other, but keeping in a forward direction. And I thought, I said he couldn't even find his way to his own bed at home. So how he's going to find the loo in a strange house, I don't know. I'd better just go and check. Fair enough. Well, 
I found him. Not in the downstairs loo, where he would have been quite comfortable. And my mother, with some, my mother-in-law-to-be, as it were, with some foresight, had produced dinner already, and we were going to have a little beef stroganoff, associated vegetables, and she'd laid it all out on a hostess trolley in the kitchen, ready to go through to the dining room. And I walked into the kitchen to find my father hovering over the hostess trolley with his cock in his hand, <laughs> peeing into the mashed potatoes. <laughs> this was not this was not going well at the opening dinner. So I managed to hoke him off the hostess trolley. He's now hosing down the kitchen units. And I go, oh, God, you absolutely can't believe you let me know. This is just so bad. And, and he managed to go into the sink, finish what he needed to do. So I, he's so pissed. So I then have to try and get his trousers. I'm, I'm putting everything back in his trousers, just as my wife-to-be walks into the room saying, don't worry, I'll handle this. And uh, clearly, she said. And I told him, get upstairs and go to bed. And he did. So he, he went up to bed. And... Um, so we started having dinner. Well, I thought, oh my God, I'd had to go back into the dining room, into the kitchen. I'd had to. <sighs> Long story short, I had to wipe down the hostess trolley, rinse off the cutlery, and there wasn't going to be time with everything. And the mashed potato had almost had his signature and we in it. So I scraped off the top, lobbed that in the bin, and I thought, how the hell do I do this? Tit, then. Tipped it onto a plate and tipped it back in upside down and mashed it all up again. No one's gonna, no one's, no one's gonna notice. No one's gonna Come on everybody, dinner and wheeled it all through and we sat at the table and it was just this hideous thing. My father in law was so drunk, he you know, my mother in law was talking to a cushion. My father in law was arguing with anything. And all we could hear from upstairs every time there was an awkward silence was my father singing the old school song, boxing and bicycling, fencing and tricycling, chapel and afternoon school. <laughs> and then suddenly there was this hideous clumping noise as he fell down the stairs. I just, he couldn't, he couldn't write this stuff. He yeah. couldn't get worse. And at this sort of, all the, Emma looked at me and said, I'll deal with that. And there was this hideous silence in the dining room. And my mother, really going sterling efforts to try and keep some semblance of normality with him. Well, Margaret, I thought I might embroider some some kneelers for the church. What do you think? <laughs> Mother-in-law, I feel so bad, said, I think I'd like some more mashed potatoes. Oh, God. <laughs> I took her plate and scraped <laughs> all of the mashed potato from the dish onto her plate and sat down and smiled for the first time that evening. Wow. I think is the story you were alluding that to. That is the story. <laughs> Stop me if I'm wrong. <laughs> oh yeah. When I heard that story, I mean it's a funny, it's very funny and it is uh, very funny, but there, there were two things I thought when I heard you tell it. One I thought, it's very interesting because the, the way you're just talking about your father's behaviour is not dissimilar from moments in your life where you've been very inebriated and I mean, done these kind of hi- hijinks. And well, lovely put, hijinks. I know, yeah. it's like horrible politically, uh, kind of trying try to make it yeah. sound nice, sounds like. But, and the other thing it reminded me of is in our first conversation in that, you know, we, when I talked to you about where did your addiction come from when when did when was your because you know what I asked I tend to ask people is 
you know, about their their first experiences of things that that have influenced their lives. And so, you know, I asked you that question, and you described a, an incident where you. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Well, my, you, yeah, yes. you, you can probably tell it better than me if you're gonna. Well, quickly, yes. My my parents used to they used to watch The Good Life, which was a television series with Felicity Kendall and Richard Pryor. Yeah, it was um, rerun when in my generation. Well, right. you, I, I think everyone original. will know it. I saw the original. Fine. Not everyone does. <laughs> and we used they used to sit in in the morning room, which was always confusing because we never used it at night. But they would sit in the morning room watching this, and they wouldn't speak to each other, they just watched television. And The Good Life is what I particularly remember. And I would sit there feeling like a complete alien. And I must have been 12 or 13, and I... One of the advantages of my father's sort of predilections was that he had a sort of industrial drive-in drinks cupboard at the back of the house. And I would go in there, and I'd mix up a cocktail, and I'd sort of fill up a glass with gin, and because I was a... Well, I was a gentleman. I put a little bit of martini on the top, make it a cocktail. But I would just guzzle that down, and then within minutes, I just felt oh, perfect, and I could sit and not feel like an alien in my own head. And I, I knew I had a problem very quickly because there was a time I came downstairs and my father was screaming and shouting at me, "What the? Are you on, boy? What the hell are you doing?" And I, I sort of utterly shocked. And my mother was at her sort of default position by the sink, washing the dishes. Clearly, if all the dishes are clean, then all is well with the world. And he stopped off to work, and I looked at her, and I just went, what? What? And she just said, um, oh, darling, she said, well, we're watching the good life. She said, you suddenly just stood up, you took off all your clothes, stood on the coffee table and peed into the fireplace. And I'd experienced, I had no recollection of this, and I'd experienced my first alcoholic blackout. Yeah. And I knew that one, I wanted to carry on drinking because I liked the feeling, and two, I knew that it was dangerous for me to do so because I did shit that I didn't know yeah. was going to happen. So when drugs came along, it was a great way to control that. So I could get high and loaded without losing control. Yeah. Or so I thought. Um, <laughs> yeah. And um, so in those early days, and it all happened very early for me, and the progression was very quick. Yeah. And I got chucked out of school at fifteen, and you know, within six months, I was a heroin addict. So yeah. I, I didn't really learn how to drink like a gentleman or behave like one because I, I, my experience of growing up in a sort of work hard, play hard culture, I missed the first bit, the play hard bit I got, you know. And everyone kind of swapped stories, and it was very encouraged, you know, yeah. to, 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 you know, the idea of drinking a jug of you know, Moscow meal cocktail and braying up the skirt of your hostess like a donkey <coughs> was considered de rigueur. And I think one of the things about these kind of stories of, about your life and thinking about class in general is that, that these stories are not dissimilar from a lot of working class people's That's lives. That's what I mean, they all exactly. the same. It's just different brands of booze yeah. that are causing these things to happen. But it's, it's you know, addiction and the... Pr- pr- is a very human thing. Uh, uh, yeah, it's substances that, is a very human thing, and, you, and, and all across, yeah, I think, everyone You does. could argue that one of the truly egalitarian, fair experiences in life, you know, addiction might have its, might have its detractors, but one <laughs> of the great things about addiction is it's a great leveller. Yeah. Is it knows no, no social boundary, no class, which, of course, the whole drug culture and anti-culture of the time growing up in that sort of punk rock era of the, of the mid-70s, 
was hugely appealing to me. And growing up as a child, I was allowed to go and play in my friends' houses in the village, but I wasn't allowed to bring them into my house. Yeah. They weren't allowed in. I never understood that. I never got it. And the sort of class consciousness of growing up in the big house in the country, which I didn't, I didn't understand. I just thought my parents were a bit weird. I wasn't allowed to have my friends at home. Yeah. And unless they were wearing a sailor suit and had a double barrel name, they weren't welcome, pretty much. You know, if their dad had a tattoo and you know worked in the mine, they were not to be my friends. Yeah. And I, I rebelled against that big time because I, I wanted to choose my infants. I didn't want to, I didn't want to have to. F- play with Marcus because he was friends with mummy and daddy or his mum and dad I yeah, wanted to play with you. Kevin because he was more fun and had a bigger bike sure you know like to blow up shit yeah you know, exactly that, that was fun I was yeah, a boy I wanted absolutely. to do stuff like that <clears throat> absolutely I mean and, and yeah I mean and I guess when I heard that story I just the parallel between this event in your childhood of you pissing in the yeah, fireplace yeah, absolutely. and, and your it's, dad pissing it's in clearly it. genetic it, it, <laughs> <yes>. it's clearly <laughs> genetic it's interesting yeah. and as someone who has a mind for narrative I always go oh, uh, but you know but, uh, th- this whole peeing, up, peeing back was also there's, there's an element of payback in that of course because I was a bedwetter apologies to any alcoholics listening um, but I was a bedwetter and my growing up my childhood was um well, damp, obviously, but also incredibly shame-based. Because yeah. They tried to control that with humiliation. Wear your bedsheets for breakfast. Ah, no, bad. And then my mum, who quite clearly read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, got this device which was like a table tennis netting material <coughs> which you put on the bed, and when you wet it, it gave you an electric shock. Jesus Christ. So it's like a version therapy. Not only did it give you an electric shock, it also rang an alarm so that everybody in the house knew. Oh, wet the bed. So it was a nightmare. So um, obviously we probably should have opened up a water sports club, but we didn't. <laughs> yeah, that's a, an interesting idea. Yeah, I think people are getting cold. I can sense that. They must be bored by now. They're not bored, but they're cold. So yeah, well, he, he, he's heard all your stories before, Ryan. I think that's why. So before he didn't I want to do them. Before, before I open up the conversation a bit to the to the audience, which is what I'm doing at this kind of a point the last thing I sort of wanted to touch on before that is because it, it seemed like the first time I did the conversation I did your pretty much your life story but where I missed out was that you were a city boy is that uh, right? yes I was yeah I was a very highly qualified uh, options broker what was that like? it was well it's like everything else it was just um, something I I went into the city by accident. I mean, not, I took a wrong left turn, although very near me. My dad wanted me to be a stockbroker and I absolutely refused, point blank. And he insisted, actually, that I go and meet this man at the stock exchange. But I had to go and get a suit made first. And we thought, right. And he told me, I will stop your allowance if you don't get a suit made and don't turn up and meet this man. That's a bit hardcore. And how do I get out of that? So I was reading P.G. Woodhouse at the time, and on the front cover was a, was a picture by Ionicus of Sir Galahad Threepwood, a particular hero of mine, who had a sort of American golfing trouser, check, bright yellow tweed suit on. So I said to the tailor, well, I, my father, he said, has the boy arrived? Oh, yes, sir, he's, yes, sir. I'm just going to measure him now, sir. And uh, I had a suit made in bright orange. <laughs> 
and it arrived, and I went to my interview in the city in bright orange American golfing trousers check, conducted the interview, and said all the wrong things deliberately, and was never asked back. So many years later, ten years later, whatever it was, it was weird. I was working for a publisher selling mailing lists. I was a marketing guru at the time. I knew how to engage people apparently. And I was pitching this firm of stockbrokers. Oh, you should buy my mailing list because all these people who expressed an interest in financial products in the past. Oh, well, we rent it to you for £100 a go. Blah, blah, blah. And he just looked at me and he said, what on earth are you doing? I said, what? He said, what are you doing? What are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm trying to sell you a mailing list. He said, look, come with me. And he took me, rather like an old teacher, by the, by the earlobe, marched me into the dealing room of the stockbroker. He said, right, where do you work? What's your boss's number? Give it to me now. Give it to me now. This man was so immediate. His vitality, his energy. I thought he was brilliant. He rang up my boss and said, hello, does Radcliffe work for you? Right, well, he doesn't anymore. He works for me. Thank you. And put the phone down. Next day, I started working as a stockbroker for a firm called Merchant Securities. And we were the only private client brokerage in Britain where you could buy traded options. And I became rather adept at persuading people I had never met to give me £100,000 to trade in the market. That's what I did. And I did that for about seven years. And I was quite good at it. Don't know why. I ended up being head of new business. I only lost that job after I... Well, there were two things that went wrong. I, I brought the company's name into disrepute when I appeared, actually appeared in the News of the World supplement uh, in a gay sort of rubber cutaway jumpsuit, being led around by a knit girl on a, on a dog collar. <laughs> um, and um, the photograph was blown up, posted all over the office. Didn't quite set the right tone. Um, and uh, I was sort of, you know, quite clearly off my head. I earned an awful lot of money very quickly and I, I blew up and crack cocaine had been invented and became very fashionable and so I was trading huge amounts of money high as a kite um, and they said they locked me in the boardroom and said we're going to get a doctor to come and drug test you but if you come clean and ask for help we'll 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 help you and I I realised the game was up and I admitted to the fact that I might might have a minor pharmaceutical issue <laughs> and went off I was checked into a treatment centre talked to my actor and I went back to that same company and they took all my clients off me and said right you start again from nothing and prove to us that you're worth it and um, a challenge I I declined and I, I never went back what is your opinion of the banks, I guess, of the kind of the city boy culture that a lot of people have a lot of the things city to works, say about that? The city days. works like to work well in the city or to be a broker, you know, it's a salesman, it's a fancy word for something. You just have to understand two things. You have to understand how to manipulate people's fear and greed. And it's a balance between the two. The rest is a window dressing. I mean it didn't even get me started because I'm a great fan of David Bowie he's my favourite hero in the world but he, he is single-handedly responsible for the decline and the collapse of the banking system why? well he came up with a brilliant business model where he sold all the future revenue from his records in a lump sum to another bank okay. and they bought it and then somebody thought oh we could do this for mortgages we could do this for houses so that's what they did so they 
basically David Bowie is quite a good bet because people love what he's got and so they're right this album you can have it it's going to earn over the next 20 years this album will earn 20 million dollars I'll sell it to you now for 10 and that's what they did with mortgages but nobody checked that the people that had first done the mortgages were were sound investments if you like so effectively some guy in a trailer park in Wisconsin failed on his payments and the whole story a lot of them came down and I think that people's mystique about the city and distrust is very well placed it magnifies everything that is bad and un, should I say uncharitable about the human condition because if you give people the wherewithal to make great deal you know, great amount of money dress it up in the respectability of, of, of a suit why wouldn't they and the regulator well those that can do those that can't regulate simple the regulators are 10 years behind and all the switched on kids coming up with these new algorithmic trading systems nobody knows how to control it because they don't know what they're doing the guys that run the bank don't know what the, the young bucks in the back office are doing yeah. you know what did we have today some guy 2.4 billion he gambled of UBS's money nobody knew he was doing it hello our banking system deserves to collapse yeah, I mean, I, 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 again, I agree with you, although, as you know when you're saying that, and I know when I'm hearing that, the collapse of that deserving industry, and it does deserve maybe to collapse, is going to not necessarily be good for lots and lots of, of people. That's Actually, I think it would be great for everybody. Do you? I disagree okay. with you. That's okay, go, go, go. I think it would be brilliant for everyone, because you tear it down, <coughs> it has to then... Rip it up and it start has, again. It has to... We're never going to stop trading. We're never going to stop having to hold, have our money held somewhere. Okay. But what we can do is stop some of the ridiculous excesses that allow people to take advantage sure, of other people's too. ignorance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I mean, the banking system is nuts. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm a regular banker with. I can't. I can't mention. Don't, don't say it. I yeah. better not say it. But anyway, you know, I have a very close, a very close relationship with with a, a lady in Gujarat. Every time I ring up to do something, I have to speak to somebody in India who assures me that my query will be dealt with. They haven't a clue who I am. They have no concept of my actual circumstance, nor do they care. And the bank has factored out its call centre to a foreign country. Yeah. With no, you know, and it's all just about numbers and it's about score charts and sure. it's all about this guy's <coughs> this and this person's are that. Whatever happens to. You know, it's the same as the health service. Whatever happened to you knowing you've got a bad back, or you need to go and speak to old old Potter Swade over there. It's personal face, personal relationships, interpersonal relationships. The modern banking system denies and strips away any subjective value judgment. Oh, and when you do that in any arena, you become the machine. You become part of the machine, and the machine takes over. And those that understand the mechanics of the machine are given an inordinate amount of power and nobody to be responsible to. Well, no, I mean, and I absolutely agree with that. And I and I, 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 I want to see the demise of the, the current banking system. I mean, I, we probably have different... Like, I mean, I'm probably much more... Probably much more radical, I suspect, uh, in what I would do. But, but it, You've probably got money in your bank, right? No, no I've got no don't. money in my bank. Oh, well, then we do have that in common. Yeah. Exactly. We, we, I, the only difference is I sound like I do. No, no. I think that the, the, the yeah, but I mean, what, what you're what you're talking about is is the fact that you know we can't 
get rid of capitalism, but we can at least go back to a more acceptable <coughs> version. You don't need to get rid of capitalism. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know. Capitalism's fine. Sure. Yeah, no, okay. but, well, we don't need That's to, where we differ. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. Just I don't believe capitalism, capitalism is not inherently wrong, but the, the way we administer it and abdicate responsibility for the control of it to people that are not accountable is wrong. And that's our own stupid fault in exactly the same way that we have the wherewithal to educate people yeah. fairly in a better way, and we choose not to do it. Society makes choices, whether it thinks it does or not. And it's as much of a choice to not turn up and not take part. You know, what is it, that, that old quote from someone saying, you know, evil flourishes when good men do nothing. Yeah, sure. And Full I mean, stop. We agree on that. Yeah. And, in like, and, and, I mean, what I was really getting at when I was saying, you know, the, the cost of that, that system collapsing is going to be great on individuals, and that's a, that's a sad thing to me. Well, I've done my like bit, as you know. Yeah. I went to jail for trying to rob a bank. Um, <laughs> that's true. On a Sunday. Yeah. Um, I, had, I hadn't done my research very well. Um, so I feel that, you know, what was then obviously a, a social no-no and a, a legal absolute no-no, had I done it today, I would have been a kind of Robin Hood. Yeah. And it's, yeah, interesting, right, it's interesting how at different times in life your actions would be judged differently by your peers. And that's the point that I always come back yeah, to, that's really true. is without personal responsibility and a perspective based in a collective consciousness, i.e. left to my own devices, I had a warped perspective and I did bad things. I fully accept that and I have paid a price for those and continue to try and make reparation. That's a separate issue. But the banks are not accountable anymore. No. And when you take away personal responsibility or the need for it, Mayhem will ensue, yeah. and we are living amongst it now. Well, something I've been thinking about a lot recently is that whilst I agree with that we all should have personal responsibility, there is also such a thing as social responsibility that for the whole collective that we are lacking at the moment. So it doesn't matter that. how responsible we are as individuals, if we're not in a responsible society, we can't have I it. totally agree, but I think it's naive, I'm going to sound like Michael sure. now. I think it's naive to think that capitalism cannot deliver yeah, a social I, responsibility. Don't worry, I hear that a lot. Yeah, and I, 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 I do recognise. You've grown opinion. the beard, and you've made yourself, you've made your position very clear. And that's fine. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm looking for money the same as anyone else in the capitalist system. I just don't like the system. Anyway, never mind that. Uh, let's open this up to the audience to join the conversation now. So, I mean, is there anything that anybody would like to ask Radcliffe, or I guess myself? But it's Rad Radcliffe's done most, yeah, most of the talking tonight. So. Let's see. This might be the first night they're stumped. <laughs> it's like wow. Um, Obviously, everyone's very interested in what in what what you say, but do you find sometimes you have so many wonderful stories and you've had such a fascinating life that people are sometimes somewhat stumped as to what to ask you. But if that's, that's if you're trying question. to get my phone number, <laughs> <laughs> then just be direct. It's pretty easy to get out here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's a fair enough. It is a, that's a great question. Yes, I mean, I have the advantage of probably a few more years. I, I've lived, I've lived a very rich uh, and a very poor <laughs> life. Um, I've survived. You know, I'm I'm a bit older than you, so I just have more stories, and I am cursed or blessed, whichever way you look at it, with a gin trap memory that 
just remembers everything. You have got a very exceptional recall. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the main... For someone who's had so many substances that should have messed up your ability to recall <laughs> things, it's really fascinating how much you can remember. Yeah. I can, I, and I do perhaps need to find a, an outlet which is, you know, locking ten people in a greenhouse is perhaps unfair on those ten. But, um, yeah, I do... I, I don't know whether it's the stories or whether it's just the, the perspectives that I put on them or the, the view I have of them. Yeah, I have far too much to say and I probably need to knuckle down and write it all out and let it all go and forget about it. But until I've done that... But I won't apologise for having lived. Yeah. Oh, no, no, I, was, I wasn't asking you to. It's just... Um I was just thinking sometimes of interaction with people it seems to find I don't know I'm just no I thought it was a really good question I mean what I think my my understanding of what you were asking was I mean in this question and answer session you've got so many stories that it's almost like well where do you start where do you where do you really get in as a, a questioning I mean I've certainly found that having these conversations with you it's like wow this is like most of my conversations are with people who have very interesting lives and I don't want to say that anybody doesn't have an interesting life but there's so much to your life that it really is like been a real task of how do I how do I like like I missed out City Boy completely in the first thing and then when I got home I was like how did I manage to forget like it, as you say as someone who likes narrative you rob the bank and you work for the banks those two things are uh, linked uh, together I, I never worked for the bank okay okay but within the milieu of the financial I worked within industry. the financial services yes. industry okay but that's a nice, yeah, I'm only making it sound, I'm only rewriting it because it's better if you haven't actually worked in a bank. But yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, th th that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that it's really hard to, to get into your life because there's so much of it. And I think that's what you, you, you were getting to. One thing I guess, you, what your question makes me think of is, is there anyone, you know, you've done the liar show, is there anyone who doesn't believe your stories? Has, have you had that experience of people not believing? I, I've got several judges. <laughs> um, I've been put up for that. Um, I, I often, it's a good question. Yeah. Said, are you just a good bullshitter? And the answer to that question is, yes, I am. <clears throat> but I've managed to kid myself more than I've kidded anybody else, which is why I always got myself into sort of colourful situations. Yeah. I mean, I was never going to be a shrinking violet. And I, I think... Well, You're too tall for us. No, one, exactly. And I think, you know, I was always tall. I always stood out. I was always too loud. And... Um, one of the greatest ways to find where the drugs were was to let everybody know, yeah, I'm completely up for anything sort of person. You know, I had one friend, that they'd been, uh, yeah, well, like, you know, they would rob a chemist and they literally, they said, well, we don't know what that does, give it to Rankin. If he stays upright, we won't bother with this. Oh, if he falls down, it's a downer and, you know, we'll gauge it from that. I just lived, yeah, I, I wanted to eat life. I have an appetite for life. I'm interested in life, in people, in situations, and I didn't have any breaks. That was my problem. And it has had, a, but it has had a, all of these things have had a physical effect on you as well, haven't they? I mean, when oh, we were yeah. up in Edinburgh, you had a terrible time. In, in, you were I've in a lot still of pain. got it now. Yeah, no, I know. I'm, I was worried I'm, about I'm the bowel. Yeah. Your, no, it's actually working quite well. Okay. I have, um, yeah, I've had half my lungs removed. I've had most of the veins in my legs stripped out I've had uh, you know, stab wounds and cuts and old bits and bobs I live with hepatitis I uh, have got three discs that have just gone out one of them is prolapsed and I have the worst sciatica that I've ever had you know and I have a doctor that smiles sweetly and says well the one thing about you is we don't have to worry about a long retirement so yeah have I paid a price for for, for the way I live my life yeah I did. 
but yeah. more more saddening and more more pertinent is that most of my life and most of the damage that I caused myself was, you know, and all the destruction and all the nonsense that went on was paid for by the people that loved me most. Sure. And that, I, I never forget that. Sure. And, I mean, yeah, every, every, every time we talk, it, this comes up, which is a reasonable thing for it to come up, and it's, I'm sure your friends and family have suffered a lot, and, I, and I'm sure they know that, but I think you're making reparations and you are... Yeah, I know. You, you can you can you can shrug it off, and so you should uh, shrug it off. But and I understand why you do. But as a fellow human being, whilst you've done many reprehensible things, I also find you a very admirable, admirable person. It's a strange. It's a strange dichotomy. It is indeed a strange dichotomy. <laughs> but the, the the to come back to to the, this lady's point is that I've got so many stories. You know, I. I kept trying. I didn't plan to, to, to screw up. Um, and the fact that I would do it spectacularly is a testament to the enthusiasm I would put into everything. I was, a, you know, I often turn around to people who sort of, you know, something awful's happened to them, and I'm lightweight, you know, you show no commitment to a cause. Um, I was passionate about things, and I'm passionate about life again now, and for that I am immensely grateful to all those people that have helped me along the way. Because I could have just given up, curled up and died, and I didn't, because I didn't want to leave my children with a legacy of, they were born to a man who quit. I didn't want to quit. It's funny, you had to, you had to quit, so you couldn't yeah. quit. Yeah. But I had to learn how to live again, so I've lived two lives. And there is a part of me that, it's not like having a TV set, you know, which channel do you want to go on, you know? Um, there's today and there's now what I try and achieve in my daily life is what I did in the old days and so I'm perhaps obviously very different to stop me talking and drop off a hat so I want to be heard I have a desperate need to be heard but you know, hopefully I'm, I, I, I allow myself to be heard in a way that's engaging for other people so yeah. an interesting thing about you though is you do listen one of the things I like about I mean about Spark and, and and going to when when you're involved in Spark is you have a massive passion for everybody's story yeah. as well as your own. You know you you really want to hear other people's stories and you really kind of connect on mm. those levels. And I think maybe that's because you've seen a lot of things and so you can re relate to a lot yeah. of things maybe. But but also it's because you listen and you care and you're interested in people. But that's the thing. I I, I you know that. I mean I know my story so yeah. You know, I'm lucky enough that I get asked nowadays to talk about stuff, and it's great. You know, give me a platform, I'll, I'll take it. But what's really exciting is because I'm prepared to do it, and I do it, and I do it in a forum where other people do it, then you get the privilege of hearing other people's experience. And it's through other people's experience. I never learnt from my own, very rarely. I learned from other people's experience. And I'm not really interested in the glitz and the glamour of hello or grazie and any of that stuff. For me, the meat and drink of life is in the everyday. It's in that lady that gets up from 8 until 8 every day doing the same job. I want to know what it's like to feel threatened by a hoodie on the bus when she's doing wheels on wheels. That's, that's important. We need to know how to stop that. We need to know why, it's the, why is that guy doing that? Yeah. Is he just a crackhead? Has he been beaten up? You don't know. And until you actually listen to everybody in the world, then you can't have a collective conscience which can go in any reasonable direction. And it's because we don't listen to each other that we allow... What is it they say? Your secrets 
you know, and all the bad stuff, they grow in the dark, they're like mushrooms in the night. So if you open the doors and let the light in, you can't fester on something. And for as long as I've done that, some people don't like what they hear, and that's fine. But from a human perspective, the more I keep the doors of my soul open, then the less the vices that would otherwise engulf me have power over me. Sure. And if I do it, then it gives other people the permission to do it. And I mean, the things that I like most about Spark and, and nothing to do with me, is that I quite like getting a laugh, being the host and shit like that, that's fun. But what I really like is, is hearing, you know, when you hear that, that lovely lady that we know talking about... Vera Eisenberg. Vera Eisenberg. Oh, from, from the moth, people may have heard yeah. of it. You know, there, yeah, there are there are great. <coughs> I'm not a great storyteller. I have lots of experiences which I stumble through sharing with people. But I listen. I get a smart and I hear great natural storytellers with incredible tales of during do or otherwise. Mm. And you know, and then what I find amazing oh, is the stories that oh. are contained and aren't flashy, don't have the kind of the rock and roll, don't have all of the big plot points, like, I mean, uh, but a really kind of, someone gets up and tells something very simple, but it's just very moving and yeah. you kind of... But right that's there. it, and you'll, yeah. get, you'll get the story of, of, of uh, the other day, was an American girl who told the story of how she'd been twice in her life mistaken for a prostitute. <laughs> now, the impact of that on a young girl's life, I'll find startling. I'm a dad, I have a daughter. I want to know what it's like for that girl, what the circumstances she was in, why did it happen? You know, what happened, was she safe, how did she get out of it? Da, 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 da. Mm. Because I hope to be able to relay that and understand it so that the world, I want to make the world a safe place for me and I want to make the world a safe place for my children. You know, I'm not so hippie that I want to make the world a safe place for everybody else and I'm now rattling my bangles and being so maybe I am. But <laughs> the point is, is that we all, we all have our personal demons. Yeah. I believe that if we communicate with each other what those are, they become disempowered. Absolutely. I mean, I agree with you fully. In fact, that is why I seek to get better acquainted with people, uh, is to find what they have to relate to, what they have to give to me, like wisdom, and you know where we're different as well. Like similarities, difference, and wisdom of what I hope to get from this project and what I hope to get from life, really, good, I guess. Is there anybody else that has any anything they'd like to say before I wrap up this conversation? I guess I wonder, because of your ability to have the great recall and because of your enthusiasm for life and learning other people's stories, do you think you were always meant to be a writer, even if, if essentially what happened to you was always meant to happen so that you could get to this place and have the stories and have the access to that entire world up and down the social spectrum. Was it always meant to be for you, or do you think you would have been there regardless? I am so not the right person to ask that question, but I love your question. Do I believe in the predetermination? cause and effect that I was given all that experience so that I could have something to write about. I don't know. Um, having a talent, having the ability to do something doesn't always mean it's a good idea to do it. <laughs> um, but I I don't know the answer to that. I'm loving that. I'm basking right now in the, in, in the fact that you out to face value take me as a writer which is how I see myself now. I didn't used to. 
I didn't know I had things yeah, I wanted to it say. It wasn't the answer he gave in the first conversation we had, I think. You said you were a storyteller, I think, which is a different thing. But I see, I did see myself, I see myself as a storyteller. With the ability to, but now with the ability to write it down. But there is a difference. You see, I look at writers and I think they're people to be revered. I'm a storyteller. Uh, I'm writers aren't to be revered. There's a few writers in this room. Okay. Well, I, I'm a storyteller. I'm someone that you can pass a pleasant half hour with and hopefully you'll go away feeling enriched and depleted for some value and time. That's where I, I don't know. It's a great question, though. It's a funny one, though, because if you believed that it was meant to be, I mean, that's a, that's quite a hard thing as well because you haven't had the, you know, you, you tell it very well, <coughs> but it must have been horrible to live. So if it was meant to be, it's a bit like, you know, I don't know. But that's what I'm saying. That's, complicated that's, curse from God, that, you know? that means I have to get my head around the, the notion of predetermination, which I don't think I don't think I'm comfortable. I don't like the idea that it had to be that way. No, it's horrible. Now. It's like Lemony Snicket. A series of unfortunate events is more I'm at. I think it's a great. I don't know. I, I, I'm going to be fretting about that thought. Was this all meant to happen? Well, I always think with pre yeah. I mean, I like predeterminism as a, an idea. And if you get into, I, t I tell stories about time travel, and if you tell stories about time travel, you end up at predeterminism, uh, no matter how hard you try not to. Um, but the funny thing is, I think the way I feel about it is, I don't want, I don't like it, like you, I don't like the idea of things being predetermined. But also, I just think if things are predetermined, it's better to just not know that. You know, it's better yeah. to just carry on regardless and just assume that life is life. But, um, it was an it was a really good question. Uh, you stumped him, Liz, which is impressive. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> You're really good. It's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you, Raz. Always, it always is. Um, and it's, I, I, how, how have people felt in the room? Because Rad's done lots of you just putting himself. Can you wake up at this point? Rad's done lots of putting himself down uh, as a kind of as if you're all bored in this room. I mean, are we all bored in this room? No, no. louder, please. Yeah. <laughs> 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 exactly. Actually, just can I just interject with a quick question? On sure. Topic, which is that you, you, I've seen you a few times, and you are a very engaging storyteller. Obviously, you've got a very engaging story to tell. Excuse me, are we getting this down? <laughs> you definitely do have an ability there. Is that something that you learn how to do, or did you just somehow come into it and just find that you've got so much story you, that you need and want to tell that you've come to it that way? Another great question, and the answer is I have learned how to tell a story, yes. And I was blessed with enough experience to keep myself enthused about telling stories, if that makes sense. I'd be, I would be bored of myself if, if I really was trapped in the Lamar syndrome of the one-hit wonder and just being skip boy. <laughs> <laughs> the appeal of that pause yeah. after a while. Yeah. So the fact that you've, said you've seen me, I'm, I'm almost dreading the answer to this question. Have I always told the same story when you've seen me? I think I've only heard the same story a couple of times. I have heard mostly different stories. Thank you. I'm back in my comfort zone. Um, uh, interestingly, you do use the same words very often. I think if people listen to the first of our conversations, when you when you go to these different places, you use the same phrases. You generally uh, tell the same jokes. Again, not that I'm saying that you're their bad jokes. They're always funny. But they, that, when you've heard you many a few times, you've heard the jokes a few times. Note to self. New experience. <laughs> New experience I don't think you need to do that.
Um, uh, the, the, in answer to that question, then it comes back to I'm so absolutely hooked in on this predeterminism now. If if you get in a helicopter over the uh, over America and you look down where the wagon trails used to go, all these wagon trails going east to the west in the gold rush, all start off as separate tracks, and by the time they get halfway across, the ruts are that deep in the ground and they're still there, and you can see from space, you can see the the routes that the the wagon trains took because everything ends up going down the same line and I think if you tell enough stories from different starting points you inevitably come to the same point and I think what I try to do is get myself back into an area where I feel safe which is why I'll use repetition of the same stuff because quite often and most of my stories do end up in the same place which is quite often a courtroom sadly but um that you know that period of my life because I know it's a clo- not a closed chapter but it, it, it's over and I can look at it dispassionately now. I'm not living in that in that, in that space. I'm able. I'm able to to tell people to share that stuff, but yeah, it is inevitable that I I end up following the same path. So maybe that's halfway to an answer to the first lady's question about predeterminism. <coughs> I'm fated. <coughs> I'm cursed. I'm stuck on a treadmill. And you're blessed as well. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a mixture of a lot of different things with you. Um, wow. We've got to, I mean, it's, it's funny, long-form conversations always gets you to these kind of, into these kind of states. Well, this is Radio Tourette's. Yeah. <laughs> as I said, it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you. And the last question I ask is, do you have anything to plug? Which is always weird. Do you? Yeah, I do. It's Christmas. Christmas is coming up and it's cold and it's wet. And there'll be a guy who was just like me ten years ago who will want to be at home and won't be for whatever reason. Share a smile with them. Talk to them. Listen to them. Just one extra person. If we all did that, then that's another however many people that are going to feel rehumanized if even for a moment because when we stop looking and when we stop hearing them we become the system that we've been ranting against this evening god I sound like a hippie <laughs> well you know if you if anyone can say that and uh, not be accused of being uh, airy fairy I think it's you because uh, you've lived it that's a great thing to plug of course this will go out in you know not in not anywhere near Christmas but that doesn't change the meaning of it and the last thing that I ask people to do is to say goodbye to the audience which I've discovered it's a bit weird when you've actually got the audience here <laughs> so what I've been doing is asking my guests to say goodbye to the audience well I'd just like to round off the evening there's about to be a very high tech curtain coming down here <laughs> and say it's been a real privilege to be able to share some of my stories with you to share our conversation Dave thank you and good night one and all and audience, would you like to say goodbye to the audience? <laughs> so, one, two, three. Bye! Bye! Bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much, Rab. That was brilliant. How do you feel about it? I am the host of Spark Hackney, which is an open mic that happens on the second Monday of every month 
at the Hackney Attic, which is upstairs at the Hackney Picture House. It's been really well attended recently and we've had some really great storytellers telling some stories there. I really recommend it. You don't know what's going to happen next. It's very exciting. Our next one will be on the 11th of March and the theme for that night is awkward. So I've got a story, I'm sure, that I can work out for awkward. Regular listeners to the show will know that I quite often feel awkward. You don't have to tell a story, but that's what the night's all about. It's to people telling stories, so we don't know what's going to happen next. And I tell you, the standard of stories can be amazing. And exciting news, but since we recorded this conversation, Radcliffe Royds has taken over hosting Spark Brixton, which is also an open mic. Now that happens on the third Monday of every month, and that's upstairs at the Ritzy in Brixton. So he adds his own very unique flavour to hosting the night, and he is often going to tell stories because that's what you do when you're the host of a storytelling night. But he also wants to hear your stories. And his next night is on the 18th of March. And the theme for that night is birthdays. So sad stories, happy stories, funny stories, touching stories, moving stories, nervy stories, all of those kind of stories set on birthdays or about your relationship to birthdays. I'm on the second Monday of every month at the Hackney Attic. Radcliffe is on the third Monday of every month upstairs at the Ritzy. You can find out more about all of that stuff at www.sparklondon.com.